Hey, BA fam, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, hey, VA fam, I have got some really freaking incredible news. We have been nominated for a Webby. Y'all, the Webby is the Oscars of the internet. And the fact that Brown Ambition has been recognized with a nomination for Best Business Podcast, this is incredible. The most incredible thing of all about being nominated for a Webby is that you guys can help decide who wins. That means you can vote for us. Go to webbyawards.com. That's W-E-B-B-Y-A-W-A-R-D-S.com. Find the best business podcast award nominees and vote for Brown Ambition. You can also check the show notes. We'll put a link to where you can vote there for easy voting. But tell a friend to tell a friend. If we take home this award, it's going to be so symbolic of all the hard work we put into this show and of how incredible our BA family is. So go vote for us. Voting is open now through April 21st. Thank y'all so much for your support. Thank you, the Webby Awards, for nominating us. Now let's take this honor home, y'all. Hey, hey, VA fam, it's Mandy, and I am back with another episode of Brown Ambition. I am so excited to introduce you guys to today's guest. Her name is Kimberly Atkins Store. She's a senior opinion writer and columnist for the Boston Globe. She is the inaugural columnist for The Emancipator, which is a joint independent anti-racist multimedia project from Globe Opinion and the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, which I am so glad that that is even a thing that exists. And the author of The Emancipator's new newsletter called Unbound. Now, Kimberly is one of my most illustrious guests yet, y'all, so I'm going to continue with her bio. She's also an MSNBC contributor and co-host, she's our podcast sister, co-host of the Politicon podcast called Hashtag Sisters in Law. Previously, Kimberly was the first Washington, D.C.-based news correspondent for WBUR, so for my NPR public radio fanatics, we love that. She's also served as the Boston Herald's Washington Bureau Chief guest host of C-SPAN's morning call-in shows, Washington Journal, and a Supreme Court reporter for Massachusetts Lawyer Weekly. So you have a a background in journalism, in law, in all these different facets. I love a multifaceted woman, and I cannot wait to get into my conversation. So without further ado, welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much for joining Brown Ambition. Thank you for having me, Mandy. I'm excited to be here. So tell me about The Emancipator. It hasn't launched yet. We're kind of a little bit ahead of the curve, breaking news for y'all. If you haven't heard of The Emancipator, what can you tell the audience about this incredible new publication and and why you decided to be a part of it? Yes. So this sprung out of a conversation 
with Bina Venkatraman, who was at the time the editorial page editor at the Boston Globe, and Dr. Ibram Kendi, as he was just getting started ramping up BU's Center for Anti-Racist Research. And they had an online Zoom chat. And after that, they connected, they started talking about abolitionist newspapers at the time before and during and after the Civil War. And these newspapers didn't just call for the emancipation of the enslaved population of people in America, they had a broader vision. You know, they thought about what it would look like, what it would take to make Black people who had been enslaved full and participating citizens in American society, how to get them educated, what they could do, how they could start businesses, how they can run for office, how they, you know, not just vote, but run for office, how they can be a fully integrated part of society as a whole, what citizenship really meant. They got the idea to take that tradition and create a new platform to take that same approach and looking at anti-racist solutions to the issues we have here and now today, not just rehashing problems or talking about them, but thinking out of the box, thinking about some solutions to the racism that's built in, into all sorts of systems, not just criminal justice. It's This grew like a lot of things out of the wake of the lynching of George Floyd, but beyond that in, in all sorts of areas. And that's where this project was born. Uh, Bina brought me on board early on. I was very eager to do so. Since then, we have co-editors-in-chief, uh, Deborah Douglas and Amber Payne, who have been steering this project to its launch. And it will launch, I'm very excited to say, it's launching very soon. It's launching this month um, after a lot, a lot of hard work and anticipation. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah, congratulations. Amber and I go way, way back. I can't remember. I feel like black women in journalism in New York, like, you know, you just find your way to one another. I'm so glad that you being in Boston, I'm getting to get to know you now. But Amber and I go way back when she was the first editor in chief of NBC Black, their, their black culture sort of publication. And when and I think when I had just started Mandy Money, I had just launched my sort of independent business, venturing out into my own this past summer. And Amber and I reconnected and she had told me she had just joined The Emancipator and I was so excited for her. And then so for her a few months later, or feels like, I don't know, who knows when it was, sometime last year, but more recently, she reached out and she's like, Mandy, we're going to be launching soon. And she invited me to write a piece for The Emancipator as well, which I was so excited to do. And I mean, it's not every day that you get people who are like, hey, can you write about inclusivity, racism in the workplace and the experience of women of color, which that's all I love talking about all day, every day here on Brown Ambition. So I'm honored and excited to just be a teeny tiny little piece of the launch of The Emancipator. Talk to me a little bit about your approach to like, there's not a ton I mean, I don't have any stats on this, but if I had to hazard a guess, there aren't very many opinion writers from women of color. You don't see that often in like mainstream publications. It must, I don't know if you feel a particular, you know, first only different sort of pressure when it comes to your approach as a, an opinion writer, but can you talk a little bit about your experience and how you got to a place where you're like, okay, I'm a black woman. I'm actually going to write about issues that are important to us. And say it with my full chest, like you've written yes. about the Crown Act, about Katanji Brown Jackson, you know, these issues that really affect us. 
Yes. You know, it's interesting when I met Bina, when she hired me to be a part of Globe Opinion, I had never been on the opinion side of a news publication. I had mostly, I had entirely been on the news side, writing news, writing analyses of the news, but still in that, you know, grounded fairness based. And I'm not that I'm the things I write now aren't fair, but this idea that when you're on the news side of a publication, it's not about what you think. It's not about you. It's about what you're covering. Whereas on the opinion side, you bring your full self to bear. It's still journalism. It's still deeply reported. You still have to show your work, but you bring all parts of you to bear. And for me, of course, that includes being a Black woman in America. Not everything that I write comes from a particular, that particular part of my perspective. I find it, I'm very grateful that the Boston Globe gives me the idea, that gives me the ability to write not only about things that are uh, really important to me, really important to the Black community, but also write about, you know, the Russia invasion, also be able to bring to bear my experience covering foreign policy and the law and everything else. Sometimes I feel like I can get pigeonholed, like I'm always the, you know, the Black commentator on a panel or something like that, or you can feel when um, you're a part of a discussion and you, you, sense that you were added because whoever was moderating it f- d- realized at the last minute that it's a panel of white men and it's like, oh, that's, that's, we need somebody, call him. That's great that they're doing that, <laughs> that they're trying to be more inclusive, but it should be more or- organic than that. And I feel like that can sometimes make you the spokesperson for Black America, which I don't enjoy being because I'm not. But I also think it is important to have more people of color at the table in all of these discussions, more women at the table in all these discussions. Any discussion that affects us in America, affects all Americans, should have representation of America in that discussion. So in that sense, I'm very grateful for this job. It is great to be able to write about things that you know people may not think about them. I think the Crown Act was an example of that, which is a piece of legislation that passed the House that prohibits employment discrimination based on one's natural hairstyle. And that really impacts uh, Black and brown women and men in a very specific way, because we have long been taught, I know I've heard this, that the natural texture of our hair is unprofessional. You know, or it's it's a hazard. It's a risk somehow. Yes, we all remember the the video of Andrew Johnson, that that uh, high school uh, wrestler who was on the sidelines and had someone cut off his locks because they violated a rule. I remember seeing that and crying. But I would see other people who I knew and respected on Twitter saying, "This isn't a big deal. Like, why are we even talking about this?" They just did not have that understanding about how that is a form of racism and how that impacts people. And so being able to talk about that and educate people in a real genuine way is is really important to me. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talk about having made the decision to go natural 10 years ago. I made a similar decision. I don't know how many years ago, but I was so broke when I moved to New York from Georgia that I literally could not afford the creamy crack. It was too expensive for me here in New York. And I would go longer and longer in between sessions. And then I started to see my curls. And I was like, these look pretty cool. What if I just kept growing it out? And at the time I thought, oh, I'm going to save so much money. (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) The number of products it takes, baby, y'all have no idea the financial commitment (laughs) to natural hair care. But anyway, I digress. I was talking to another reporter at CNN about a story 
And they offhandedly asked, you know, have you ever had any issues with your hair going through? Because I my background's in journalism. And I was like, no, not really. But then you know how you go through something and you just kind of like bury it, I guess, in a way, or you just try to like, I mean, it's what so many of us do. You just, you don't clock it at the time. You're just like, oh, okay, that happened. And I had this, just this memory come back to me, come rushing back from when I was at, I was a writer and sometimes on air at Yahoo Finance early in my journalism career. And they had a a man, a white man come in as an image consultant. And it was during this period of transition And I imagine if you were transitioning, you know, when you have natural hair, it is a whole journey in and of itself. That transition is painful. It's janky. You don't feel good about, at least I'll speak for myself. It was very hard to be in that in-between stage, you know, throw it up in a bun and try to smooth down the curls and whatever. And he was looking at footage of me from earlier in my career at Yahoo. And I was straight, you know, pinned straight, relaxed. I'm not even wearing glasses. I was like very much what I thought the image had to be. And I was in the middle of this process of transitioning. And he looked at me and was like, is that you? Like clearly, you know, he's like, that's, that doesn't look like you. You don't look like that anymore. That's a great look. And <laughs> like, and meanwhile, this guy looked like he spent many years living in his mom's basement. I do not know how this man b- became, I don't even remember his name. I'm just going to call him Jeff. That's all I can think of. How did he get the job of a pin- of image consultant? How did he get permission to make me feel so shitty about the way, you know? And that's just like, I don't want that for any other Black women to go through. Do you feel like things have gotten better? I mean, you're on TV now. You're not just writing. Do you feel like it's getting better for us? I feel like there has been progress, but like in many areas, there is much progress to go just by way of the fact that people didn't even realize, people outside of our communities didn't realize that this was even a thing. Um, one, dis- uh, one reason why I have, like, even after I chose to go natural, sometimes I'd, be, I'd do a blowout or something. I figure, you know, I can do my looks as I please. But once I started doing television, I made a a conscious decision that I would never blow out or straighten my hair on TV because I thought, especially, and this really started when I was on guest hosting the C-SPAN morning call-in show, you get callers from all over the country, all over the world. And I'm like, it's important that the people in Nebraska see what my hair looks like. It's important for the people in Boise, Idaho, and every place um, to see what natural hair looks like in their living rooms as they're having their coffee so that this can stop, so that this idea that that's not acceptable in media, in news, it's okay. Like I'm, I'm, when I was in uh, journalism school, there were still people telling, you know, black women, you need to relax your hair. You need to have a look that is acceptable for TV news. You need to be accepted in people's living rooms. And that essentially meant doing everything you can to adhere to a Eurocentric beauty standard. And that's really appalling. (laughs) We, in so many spaces, we are forced to assimilate and adhere to a standard created by someone else for someone else. And we're the ones who are asked to change ourselves as opposed to the other way around, other people learning to accept us. And I didn't want to be a part of that. So that was important to me. I think now you see a lot more people wearing their ha- hair natural, being themselves, clothing that is, it fits us better because our bodies can be different. I mean, so many things are beginning to change. I still think there's a way to go. I thought about often how, because I was a senior director at my company, yes, sure, I wasn't the CEO or anything like that, but I was able to set a tone and the level of 
is acceptability the right word? But I felt like anyone who joined my team and my team was like nearly half half BIPOC intentionally on my part, I was like, I'm going to be the quiet sleeper cell that's going to be hiring these black and brown people. And they're not going to know I'm doing it, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> that because I was representing and I was there, you know, my natural hair, that at least the signal would be sent that this is okay. I'm going to make it okay. And that's why I feel like so passionate and dedicated to more women of color in positions of power, putting yourself out there and all of that. And I don't even know where I'm going with this, but just to say thank you. It does matter. And I tell you right now, when I drop my son off at his daycare, which is mostly white, because this is like I'm in the burbs now, the number of little boys and girls who come out and stare at my hair and point at it, you really like, as the, I, I'm like one of the only black moms. I think I saw a black mom last week. I'm not kidding. I feel like a zoo animal sometimes. Once somebody touched my hair on the subway and I was just oh. tripping, you know, like it. <laughs> It's like, this is not a petting zoo. Like, what are you oh doing? My God. They're too short to touch it, but I can, but they're kids, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they're too short. But I make sure I smile big and I say hello. And I'm like, yep, this is what moms look like too. <laughs> but so you important. never, it, it, it really is. I mean, I don't, and it sucks because, you know, you think I may be the only black woman they've seen today. You know what I mean? And it's not okay, but. That's where we live in. Okay, VA fam, I'll be right back with more of my conversation with Kimberly Atkins Store from the Boston Globe. Hey, VA fam, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, BA fam, our fellow entrepreneurs and creatives, this message is sponsored by Squarespace. It is the ultimate toolkit for crafting your online presence. With Squarespace, it's really about more than just building a website. It's about shaping your online identity and making your mark. So say goodbye to checkout headaches with Squarespace's flexible payment options. From credit cards to Apple Pay, they've got you covered. And if you live in an eligible country, they offer buy now, pay later options with Afterpay and clear pay, which means that your customers have even more ways to purchase your products. So head over to squarespace.com and kickstart your journey with a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, don't forget to use our link squarespace.com slash brown ambition to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Just visit squarespace.com slash brown ambition to get your discount today. Remember your online success story begins with Squarespace. So what are you waiting for? Let's build something extraordinary together. All right, BA fam, I am back. So let's jump back into my conversation with Kimberly Atkins Store from the Boston Globe. So you write about a lot of what you write about is and you also your podcast, I'm going to talk about that is the intersection of law and the news and politics. Am I correct? So what is so what 
excites you about that space? Because I know a lot of people having come through this election, especially black women, are just like tired. But what what drives you and motivates you to cover this area? Yeah, I mean, I was tired too, but um, that sort of reinforces the importance of of all of this, right? I mean, so I was a lawyer. I was a lawyer before I was a journalist, well, kind of. I mean, I, I wrote for my college newspaper and stuff, and I really loved journalism in college. I majored in journalism in college, but I knew I was going to law school. And I practiced law for a while, and I realized that it was not for me for a lot of reasons. I just think that was not, you know, sometimes you, you were in a career and you realize that that wasn't the right choice for you and that there are other options. And I was still in my 20s. I thought it was a a good idea for me to explore other options before committing to something that might make me unhappy in the long term. It was not specifically race issues that that, uh, chased me away from practicing law, even though I was a civil litigation attorney in Boston, in which I could go weeks without seeing another Black person in the legal space. I worked for a wonderful employer, but I would go to court to argue a case and sometimes be directed to the criminal division or asked if I'm represented by counsel or asked if I was a criminal defendant. But that wasn't the main reason I stopped. I just knew that wasn't my bliss, even though I I thought the law was interesting. And so my journalism career, as you said, actually ended up steering me toward a job covering the U.S. Supreme Court for the Lawyers Weekly papers. And I loved that. I loved being on that side, the journalism side, covering these cases and why they were so important uh, and explaining that to people. And I was pretty good at doing that as well. And then as I transitioned away from that, I got into politics. I never intended to cover politics. I was actually afraid of it. And I had an editor when I was at the Boston Herald that said, oh, I think you'd be good at that. Go, you know, go to the state house and cover Mitt Romney. And I was like, do what now? (laughs) So I did that and I really loved it. It was a lot of fun. And I've since then been able to sort of keep a hand in both of those places as well as covering other national news as well. But that intersection is really important um, in understanding how laws are made, what they cover, what they impact. I mean, take the Crown Act. We already have a law that prohibits discrimination in workplaces. So technically, it should already, it is already illegal for employers to discriminate against people, not promote them or or demote them or not hire them because of their hair texture. But because people are unaware of that, and because an employer can just say, well, we have the right to set standards, you know, dress codes, hair codes, whatever we want to do. And judges will say, hey, I think that's right. You need an additional law in the Crown Act to say, no, no, it includes this. That's how the legal system works and explaining to people exactly why that is when they would say, well, why is that isn't already illegal? Well, it is. But sometimes you need that extra bit of help the same way with it wasn't the Emancipation Proclamation that required the the end of of enslaving people. It took an amendment to the Constitution and then it took states to actually adhere by that amendment to the constitution. It took much longer and much more. And you need people explaining that process and what happens in those early emancipation abolitionist newspapers, uh, like the first emancipator, like the liberator and others, you could, I would have been going back and reading them as part of this project. And you actually see people like William Lloyd Garrison writing, you know, what Lincoln did is all is nice, but that's not going to change anything unless all these other things are done. And they understood that. And so that 
that's the kind of the kind of approach that we're taking with the emancipator and having that legal background and having the understanding of the political realities is super valuable uh, to be able to help bring that to bear. Yeah, I mean, I think as excited as I was for the possibility of the Crown Act passing, I mean, it's gone through the House now, it hasn't been through the Senate yet, right? It has not. Um, it faces a tough road there. I, I Yes, because um, the majority is like razor thin, right? So, and probably Joe Manchin's going to screw it up somehow like he has been lately. <laughs> but one of the things about it was I was thinking about it, I actually wrote about it on LinkedIn, because um, a white colleague of mine, a peer of mine had posted it, shared it. And I was like... We still got to watch out, watch our backs. I mean, obviously, this is a piece of legislation. It does matter symbolically, but the the burden of proof will still be on us, you know. So if you do feel like you are being discriminated against because of your hair texture, I know in some states it already is a law, to be clear. It's not federal yet, but in some states it is a law. But keeping a record, if there's any comments or any, you know, I think back to that 20-something-year-old me who was being told by Jeff that, you know, probably going back to relax would be the better better move for me. Ah, man, if I'd only had a, a record of that conversation. But protecting ourselves and also not being complacent because at, at the end of the day, even with legislation, the bias is so present. People's bias against us, you know, and it doesn't always come so wrapped up in a bow you know, in terms of discrimination, like, we do not want you for this position, because we don't think that you're professional enough, because you're, you're black, and your hair is natural, like, it's never that easy for us to prove. And that I feel like is the, is always the exhausting challenge of it all. Is it is. And I think that's why conversations like this are so important. I think that's why the emancipator is so important. I, I don't, legislation is not going to save us. Okay. Legislation is not going to save us. We have to get through to people. We have to connect with people and let them understand exactly what the impact of things like that, something that may seem so innocuous that just was brushed off by people who have never been Im impacted by it because they didn't know, they didn't understand, they've never experienced that. And I think, you know, conversations like this, just teaching people, um, letting them see, I mean, the for the, I don't mean to jump ahead, but the, the, the series that I'm working on for The Emancipator is addresses the built-in racial bias in financial systems. And I, I think, I genuinely believe that the people who will continue to perpetuate it, a lot of these things were built by design. They, they did not want black people to own property, to, to get wealth, to, that was by design going, going back to uh, antebell antebellum times. But what I think perpetuates it are people who think they're being reasonable or being fair or doing the right thing or not understanding how that built-in bias works. You know, people who say, well, well yes, I, I want somebody to have to prove that they can pay for this house if they buy it. That seems fair, right? So they put in all of these procedures that are really surgically <laughs> targeted toward Black folks to keep them from buying that house or starting that business. Or, you know, they say, well, I want my neighborhood to be safe and there should be ways to ensure that. And that gets into redlining policies that are designed to keep Black people out. It's also teaching Black people that they're somehow risky. You know, so many systems, even more so than the criminal justice system, perhaps, where you have this built-in idea that Black people you know, if you have something like a, a police shooting, the justification of that is the subjective threat that the police officer felt in that situation. So if 
that police officer believes that black people inherently believes that black people are more threatening, that's going to justify that, right? Nowhere else is it that clear as in financial um, systems where black people are perceived credit risks. Black people are perceived security risks when they buy a house in your neighborhood. Black people are seen risky business ventures because who's going to, you know, who's going to buy that product? Black people seen as risk. And that's built into the system. And I think people don't understand how that plays out. But when you explain it in that way, I hope, I hope people, all people will say, oh, well, that isn't fair. That's not how it should work. If you work hard, if you do what you're supposed to, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness should be yours too. It shouldn't, you shouldn't start out at a disadvantage just because of who you are. And that's what I'm hoping this series will bring to bear, will teach people and hopefully lead to some change. Thank you for bringing that up. I didn't know that your series was focused on the intersection of Black Americans in the financial system. Where do we begin? I'm absolutely, (laughs) uh, I'm like panting here. Yes, let's talk about it. I remember last summer, or not even last, was it last summer? My co-host Tiffany telling a story of how her home was appraised lower. She actually had a, a white friend that she had on tap to appear at her home as as Tiffany in order to get a higher appraisal when they were trying to do, I think, a, a refinance. And now we're starting to see more of these uh, really upsetting but important anecdotes from other Black homeowners who are proving our homes have been undervalued. And I just think of, and I live now in a majority black neighborhood in the suburbs of New York, which is just this little gem that I hope no one bugs us, never bothers us. But I have to reckon with the fact that my husband and I could afford a house here because it's one of the more cheaper of areas of our county. And I have to assume it's because it's a lar- it's been a largely black middle-class neighborhood, you know, since um, the 1940s. But Talk to me about the series. Where do you even begin, Kim? Like, where where do you begin? And like, yes, do you so have that help? point? <laughs> I mean, lot. that point in itself that just it resonates so hard. I I was talking to someone who is very well off, started an entrepreneur who is pulling in massive amounts of money, and even he had that experience about being quoted a higher interest rate on a house that he was buying than he was originally given when the transaction was still purely online and once they saw him. So that affects that's still happening. I in the in the realm of funny, not funny, I got married last year. My husband is white and we are thinking about moving. And one of the things I've said to him is like, all right, well, you know, you haven't had this experience before, but when it's time to appraise the house, I think we should take the pictures down. When, you know, we are if there is a situation where you have to go into the mortgage agent, you'll take the tax returns and I want you to go in. And it's awful. It's awful to, I mean, he was appalled and I'm appalled too. I'm appalled that this is the system. I also don't want the sky high interest rate. So I'm going to do what I need to do in the meantime to survive. But that's the exactly the kind of thing that that we're talking about. And it it is foundationally, especially when it comes to buying home property, I, I, I sort of start with explaining how preventing Black folks from owning land is the foundational part of all of this. And then I go off, I go in this series to explore four different areas where that's just gotten a little bit less attention than housing discrimination and redlining. Um, one, well, this one's getting much more attention now, thanks to some lawmakers, but one is student loan debt. Student loan debt 
is a massive contributor to the racial wealth gap because black parents like mine teach us, got to go to school, got to go to college. If you want to succeed, like you got to work hard and go to college. Well, college is very expensive. And then I, you know, I went to law school. I became a lawyer. I did the things that I thought I was supposed to do. That landed me six figures in debt. And I remembered when I was graduating law school and I had my exit interview or with a financial aid, talking to a friend of mine afterwards saying, oh my God, did you have your exit interview? And they just told you how much money you owe. Isn't that crazy? And my friends were largely white almost all white, said, what What interview? We, well, we don't have loans. Our parents paid for law school. And I thought, oh, so we graduated. I'm seeing them buying cars, buying houses, getting married, moving to the suburbs, and I'm still in my rental, you know, in Jamaica Plain, Boston, barely making ends meet, trying to make those massive student loan payments the best that I could. And it's like, oh, this is what the wealth gap means. It doesn't just mean what your parents pass on to you. It's what you have in this life as you're just trying to get by. And that was sort of what made me think of this. And I look at credit reporting, um, the barriers in there, access to business capital. Black people could be building, could be contributing so much more to the economy if you just let them start businesses and hire people and put that money back into the economy. And also invest in investment and retirement. The racial wealth gap doesn't just harm black and brown people, it harms everybody. It strips trillions of dollars from the gross national product over our lifetimes. It really is costing everyone money. And I'm hoping that if I put it that way, like it's called, you want to you wanna stop this from costing you money in your pocket? Then do what you can to be a part of the solution here. Yeah. I'm so grateful that we have that you are doing this kind of work. It's so, so important. And I hope that a lot of non-Black people read it and are moved by it and understand because I bet all those friends from your, of yours from law school probably go through the world thinking, I worked hard. I went to law school. I, you know, people are mad that they can't have a house. Well, they should have worked harder. But if you don't understand the privilege and that whole starting line being so far set back for some people, how, how can you who and you know the majority is in power right so we need we need allyship and understanding from non black and brown people in positions of power when they start to care that's when the change happens we saw what happened with George Floyd in the summer of 2020 when enough of the majority started to care not just besides us and it felt extraordinary but how can we bring something like that to the same fever point in the financial sector it's quiet discrimination. It's nefarious. It's like a it's like a toxic cancer, right? And we understand it, especially on Brown Ambition. We understand why it is that we're doing what we're doing, but it doesn't necessarily always make headlines. You know, there was that the more recent one about Wells Fargo with um, was it Wells Fargo that discriminated or gave so much more mortgage denials to Black homeowners than any other bank? I think it was recent. I'll, I'll check the facts on that one if it was Wells Fargo or not. I just feel like they're the worst in general. So probably it was them, <laughs> but <laughs> it's usually Wells Fargo, right? And, but the attention that article was getting, I'm like, yes, more of this, more data to show how racism pops up for us. Absolutely. You know? And it's also important for us to show solutions. You know, Th these are, these are things that we could be doing instead. These are other paths that people have taken that maybe can be adapted on a wider scale. These are things that people, individuals can do to empower themselves in this system. So we don't want it just to be, like I said, a regurgitation of the problem. 
we want this to be a playbook and also and also start a conversation. Look, I don't have all the answers, even with all the reporting that I did, all the people that I talked to about solutions. This is not exhaustive. So I hope once this comes out, more people will say, hey, you know, we we know that problem and this is a solution that we've tried or this is a new program that we are taking on so that we can continue this conversation and come up with more solutions. It is not a stagnant uh, thing. And so that we can not only educate people about these barriers, but also empower them, including all stakeholders, everybody from the banks of America down to your individual self at your kitchen table, trying to make ends meet at the end of each month, what everybody can do, what is in everybody's power, and what's everybody res- everybody's responsibility to making sure that that realization, you know, that ideal in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is real for everyone. That's such a wonderful place to end our conversation. I wish we had more time. I want everyone to not walk, but run to the show notes right now, because we're going to put a link to Kimberly's newsletter Unbound in there, and also a link to where you can find out more about The Emancipator, which will be launching this month in April. Congratulations, Kim, on The Emancipator on Unbound and all your success. Thank Thank you you so much for joining Brown Ambition. It's been such a wonderful conversation. I loved having you on. Thank you so much for having me on. I've loved talking to you. Hey, BA fam, we could not do this show without your support or the support of our team behind the scenes. The Brown Ambition podcast is produced by Cumulus Podcast Network. It's edited by the wonderful Imani Crosby and produced by Tanya Bustos. Dennis Stemplinski is our in-house tech guru. And I am Mandy Woodruff-Santos, your co-host. And I will see y'all next week. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.